It's the moment we've all been waiting for. Jeremy Hunt's first budget. It was a invigorating, incredibly exciting speech. Uh, one of the best hours of television I've watched this year. Uh, I'm not being entirely serious, but I mean, there were some important announcements and we are going to go through them um, in, in as much detail as we think is, is necessary this evening. Um, I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, how are you doing? Were you glued to your TV screens with a bag of popcorn at 1pm today? No, I've been on strike today, so I was actually having lunch with my mum at that time. But I have been catching up in dribs and drabs, and I'm really excited to hear what our amazing guest has to say about the budget today. So, yeah, really excited for today's show. And I suppose to be clear, you're on strike in your capacity as, a, as an academic, right? So um, you, you're not doing academic work today, but you are doing Navarra work because we, we, we don't have industrial disputes at Navarra. Meeting, <laughs> we do have a union, though. But yeah, yeah. I am I'm, yeah, on strike for my academic work. So my day job, I was relieved of my duties today. <laughs> um, in the second part of the show, we are going to be talking about non-budget things. Um, so evidence that the BBC kowtowed to pressure from the government over the course of the pandemic. I'll be speaking to Dahlia all about that. We do want to know your comments. Do let us know on the YouTube Super Chat or you can tweet on the hashtag Navarra Live. What did you think of Jeremy Hunt's budget? Were there any announcements potentially on childcare that you are you know, pleased to see? Are there any that you're worried about? Let's get straight on with it. Um, today was the first budget since the disastrous so-called mini-budget that Kwasi Kwarteng delivered last year. Jeremy Hunt has made a big announcement on childcare, some significant changes to tax, lots more as well. To talk us through it all, I'm delighted to be joined by Miata Fanbula. Miata is chief executive of the New Economics Foundation and Labour's parliamentary candidate for Camberwell and Peckham. So if you win um, at the next general election, you'll be replacing um, Harriet Harman. I suppose you'll be hoping for a career as, as long as hers on the parliamentary benches. Can only, can only hope. Uh, big, big <laughs> shoes and a long career to step into. Um, brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. We do appreciate it. I'm going to be getting Miata to respond to various parts of the speech in a more articulate way than I would possibly be able to. Um, so let's go through the key parts. This is how um, Jeremy Hunt opened the budget. It was with reference to forecasts from the Office for Budget Responsibility. Madam Deputy Speaker, in the face of enormous challenges, I report today on a British economy which is proving the doubters wrong. In the autumn, we took difficult decisions to deliver stability and sound money. Since mid-October, 10-year gilt rates have fallen, debt servicing costs are down, mortgage rates are lower and inflation has peaked. The International Monetary Fund says our approach means the UK economy is on the right track. But we remain vigilant and will not hesitate to take whatever steps are necessary for economic stability. Today, the Office for Budget Responsibility forecasts that because of changing international factors and the measures I take, the UK will not now enter a technical recession this year. So that was the first big news. We're not going to be entering a technical recession. Um, what's a technical recession? Should we care? Should we all be rejoicing? Good times ahead. So it means that in theory, we won't have multiple quarters where the economy is basically uh, declining. Um, and to be fair, the Office for Budget Responsibility has uprated its growth forecast. So it thought, uh, you know, this coming year, 
uh, growth would fall by about 1.5%. And it's now looking like we will essentially flatline at about 0.4%. What I would say is even though we might not be in a technical recession, I think if you go to people across the country and you ask them how they're feeling, it will feel like a recession. The economy is limping along, has been limping along for a really long time. And the impacts of rising prices and the cost of living is biting people hard and impacting on businesses. So there's the numbers and then there's the reality in the real world. And I think for many people, it will feel as bad as a recession. And I suppose from a, you know, a technical sense or, you know, for me, who doesn't quite understand all the complexities of this, how can it be the case that the economy isn't going to shrink, but everyone's wages or everyone's real wages are going to fall? Like who's getting that money then? If, if if our wages are falling, and I keep hearing that you know cost of living is going to be hit the the biggest it has been in fifty years or whatever, but the the economy as a whole isn't shrinking. How do you square that circle? How can those two things be consistent with each other? Well, you know that's been the story for the last uh, almost fifteen years now. So if we think about what's happened to the pie, it's been growing. Um, We've had periods where actually we've seen GDP growing between 2010 and 2016, for example. But those benefits haven't translated to the majority of people. So there is a handful of people at the top that are taking a big chunk of the pie and are doing pretty well. But for the rest of the people, they've either flatlined or in many cases seen their living standards going backwards, seen their wages going backwards. So what we're seeing over this short period for me is just... uh, you know, it's a it's it's the continuation of a trend that we've seen for over over a decade, and we've not had that in recent modern history. You know, the theory was always the pie grows, the economy does well, everyone does better. That's not been the story, and that's why, for me, when the Office for Budget Responsibility tells us that living standards, if you measure it in terms of household incomes, are about to drop by six percent over the course of the next two years the biggest decline since records began. For me, that's the main story we need to take out of what's happening in the economy and the government's response and how woefully inadequate it is. Yeah, I think most people care probably more whether or not they have 6% less income next year and the year after than than if we're technically in a recession or not. Um, Let's go to what was probably the biggest single announcement in the speech, which was on childcare. I don't want any parent with a child under five to be prevented from working if they want to, because it's damaging to our economy and unfair mainly to women. So today I announce that in eligible households where all adults are working at least 16 hours, we will introduce 30 hours of free childcare, not just for three and four-year-olds, but for every single child over the age of nine months. The 30-hour offer will now start from the moment maternity or paternity leave ends. It's a package worth, on average, £6,500 every year for a family with a two-year-old child using 35 hours of childcare every week and reduces their childcare costs by nearly 60%. Because it is such a large reform, we will introduce it in stages to ensure there is enough supply in the market. Working parents of two-year-olds will be be able to access 15 hours of free care from April 2024, helping around half a million parents. From September 24, that 15 hours will be extended to all children from nine months up, meaning a total of nearly one million parents 
will be eligible. And from September 25, every single working parent of under fives will have access to 30 hours free childcare per week. So that seems like a pretty significant announcement, childcare for everyone from nine months to four, before it was only three and four-year-olds. Um, I suppose, one, can you speak about how significant that might be? And then also with your Labour candidate hat on, have you just been completely outmaneuvered here? So, look, the first thing to say is that it's good news that childcare is at the top of the agenda. Uh, the cost of childcare has been massively prohibitive. Uh, if you take the average income, uh, for some people, it's about 60%, up to 60% of the average income. We pay four times more on childcare than they do in Germany, than they do in Denmark, than they do in Norway. So we absolutely have needed to grip this issue for a really long time. So the fact that it's there is a positive step. And extending um, 30 hours of free childcare to first and second year olds is a big step forward. But, and here's the big but, two things. If you think about most families that are working full time, 30 hours a week for 38 weeks in the year is not enough. That's not full time. That's not universal childcare. That still leaves you juggling and, and uh, dealing with the pressures of that. But the second part, and for me, this is the big issue. We know the childcare sector is on its knees. We know that lots of providers and lots of settings are closing because they don't have enough money because they've been suffering from cuts. And so expanding the entitlement, so you're increasing demand for childcare places, but you're not putting enough money into the system. So the government has said it's going to top it up by about 200 million. That's like a drop in the ocean. The risk now is that you put so much pressure on childcare providers that the sector collapses. So the very thing that you're trying to do, which is to expand childcare provision, help mothers into the labour market, could be stymied because the sector can't cope because not enough investment is going into it. And then the final thing I'd add, it's also about quality. So we know, for example, that our childcare uh, workers are one of the lowest paid. Uh, many are on minimum wage doing really valuable work. And again, unless you put enough investment in the system so that we're able to increase wages, increase standards, increase quality, you're raising demand, but you're creating problems in the system. So just so I'm clear on this, so there's, there's this £200 million investment you're talking about in sort of expanding supply, but by offering this free childcare to parents, essentially, they're going to be paying the fees that parents pay. So there will be lots more government money, presumably going to the childcare sector. So what, what's the difference between those two things? The, the government saying, we will pay for your child to go to childcare. How, how, how is that not investment? So it is investment, but not enough, because what matters is the per child subsidy that's going into the system. So already, if we take three to four year olds, which the government again subsidizes, what the sector is telling us is it's not enough money. We are struggling. We're having to ask parents to add in extra money in order to make ends meet. We're having to charge one and two year olds more in order to cross subsidize three and four year olds. And what they're now about to do is to then roll that into one and two year olds. And so unless the subsidy is there to actually cover the cost of looking after those kids, you've got a problem. And the risk at the moment is that we're extending it. Yes, there'll be more money going in, but it just won't be enough to deliver this quality of care that parents expect and that providers want to give. And for me, you know, what we should be doing is looking at what we see in Scandinavian countries, for example, where there's a recognition that childcare is absolutely vital for getting women into the labour market, but also, more importantly, for life chances for kids. 
So they say, look, we will subsidize it all. Universal childcare, free at the point of need. And for me, that's the sort of system that we need to move towards. Um, and so, you know, they have taken some of the things that the Labour Party was sort of thinking about. And what I hope this means is that actually if Labour say, which we do, that childcare is going to be a big part of the agenda, this means that there will have to be a really ambitious offer that generally works for families, because in the end, that's what matters. That makes a lot of sense. So it's not just how many hours you offer to pay for, it's how much you pay for each of those hours. And that will depend on, you know, that, that will affect the quality of the childcare. Um, let's go to another headline announcement. Um, this is one that is slightly more complicated. I have listened to the concerns of many senior NHS clinicians who say unpredictable pension tax charges are making them leave the NHS just when they are needed the most. The NHS is our biggest employer and we will shortly publish a long-term workforce plan that I promised in the autumn statement. But ahead of that, I don't want any doctor to retire early because of the way pension taxes work. It's an issue I've discussed not just with the current health secretary, but a former health secretary who kindly took a break from WhatsApping his colleagues to consider it. As, as chancellor, I have realized the issue goes wider than doctors. No one should be pushed out of the workforce for tax reasons. So today I will increase the pensions annual tax-free allowance from, by 50% from 40,000 to 60,000. Some have also asked me to increase the lifetime allowance from its one million pound limit. But I've decided not to do that. Instead, I will go further and abolish the lifetime allowance. Now, in that section of the speech, I understood the joke about Matt Hancock. Um, the rest of it could have almost been a foreign language. I sort of try not to look at my own pension scheme, let alone sort of look at the wider policy here. Um, Miata, can you make some sense of this for me? This, this announcement seems to be leading the news. It's very significant, clearly. Um, but I imagine many of our viewers, um, like myself, are a little bit perplexed as to the significance of this and, and exactly what it means. Yeah, look, this is an odd one. So essentially... Um, if you are contributing more than, under the old system, if you were contributing more than 40,000 a year into your pension pot, you got taxed on it. If you had a pension pot over a million pounds, you got taxed for it. And essentially what the government's doing is saying, if you're contributing, um, the, the level in which you're contributing before your tax, we're going to raise to 60,000 pounds a year. And then if you've got a pension pot of a million pounds, you don't get taxed on it. Now, this impacts on about 10,000 people um, at a cost of 800 million um, in, at the start of this, um, rising up to a billion pounds. And the idea behind it is that it somehow will incentivize people not to uh, retire early. But for every person that doesn't retire early, it's going to cost us about 60 grand. So it's a really expensive, strange measure when actually, if you're that bothered about doctors and keeping them, invest in the NHS, increase wages for nurses and other um, healthcare workers so that it doesn't put so much pressure on your consultants. It's a really strange measure. It's an expensive measure. And in the end, if you boil it down, it's a tax cut for the people that need it the least. That makes a lot of sense. It's sort of a bung to 
rich, well, not rich pensioners because they're not pensioners yet, people on high incomes who are putting a lot of money into their pension scheme, kind of a bung to them. And the idea is this will keep more doctors in their job. But as you say, it seems to be somewhat inefficient. Um, let's race through the other key announcements very quickly. You'll be keen to know no more clips of Jeremy Hunt for you. Um, energy, government subsidies limiting typical household energy bills to 2,500 a year will be extended until June. Um, you remember from sort of previous episodes that was going to be going up to 3,000 pounds, which is going to be difficult for lots of households. That's Martin Lewis getting his way. Um, on businesses, um, confirmation that corporation tax will increase from 19% to 25%. Um, obviously, that's been uh, that's not new, um, but it's confirmation. Um, and then this is new. Companies will be able to deduct investment in new machinery and technology to lower their taxable profits. So the idea um, there being that you don't get taxed on, you, you, you can you can put all of your investment as an expense and it's supposed to encourage more investment, which is supposed to improve growth. And then on disability, I think this one is going to turn out to be very important. Um, work capability assessment abolished and disability benefits to no longer be affected by whether or not someone is in work. Now, those two headline announcements sound very good there, the work capability assessment you know, caused so much harm and so much misery for many disabled people. You had, you know, just such awful stories of people going to this very impersonal meeting with a subcontracted company who then says, oh, no, you can clearly work. You can clearly work when someone, you know, clearly um, can't. So getting rid of that would be a good thing, but it's very unclear what it's going to be replaced with. And I think many people are worried that it will just get rid of the benefit altogether and then people will end up being poorer as a result. Um, Miata. I suppose broad sweep, um, separate from what we talked about already. What, what seemed most significant in this budget to you? Look, I think for me, what was most significant was what wasn't in the budget. Uh, so again, the most important thing to say is the backdrop to this budget was the Office for Budget Responsibilities assessment that living standards, uh, because household incomes were about to drop by 6%, uh, that was the backdrop. And so for me, I wanted to see a lot more on both supporting people in the short term with the cost of living, but more importantly, a big drive to kickstart the economy. And on the former, you know, nothing on increasing public sector pay, nothing on helping families on low incomes, whether that is through, for example, increasing the national living wage or um, increasing benefits so they reflect the true cost of living. The energy price guarantee Keeping that at 2,500 is a good thing. It's a no-brainer. But the support that families are getting to their bills, that 400 pounds is going away. And there is no measures there to, for example, drive insulation so we can get bills down or indeed have a long-term approach to keeping energy bills down. And then the real kicker is, you look over to what the US is doing and Biden with its Inflation Reduction Act. You look at the EU's Green New Deal, massive investment in the green transition, because they can see that's the way in which you kickstart your economy, that creates new industries, creates good jobs, allows you to build the infrastructure, both social and green. And we had none of that. So others are running and we're pretty much plodding along, which I find completely bizarre when your own watchdog is telling you your economy is ailing and people's living standards are being hammered. So I promised our viewers no more clips of Jeremy Hunt. We do have... Uh, a minute of Keir Starmer, though. He gave a full response after the budget. This was his closing argument. And that was the test today. Can we move beyond the usual sticking plaster solutions, set a new direction for growth that serves the interests of working people? But I'm afraid the verdict on this budget is clear. They won't offer change because they can't. 
and so our course is set. Managed decline, Britain going backwards, the sick man of Europe once again. That's the Britain they've created and they should look it in the eye. Because today's figures on growth put their failures up in lights. After 13 years of Tories sticking plaster politics, 13 years of no growth for the many, 13 years of being asked to pay, working people are entitled to ask, am I any better off than I was before? And after 13 years, with no excuses left, nobody left to blame, no ambition or answers, the resounding answer is no, and they know it. So Miata, you are a Labour Party candidate. Unless there's a huge upset, you'll be sitting on the Labour benches after the next general election. What do you make of Labour's offer? I mean, that to me, that summary seemed like it was a decent critique of the Tories' time in office, but it could have been made by kind of anyone from any political persuasion. I'm not sure what the offer is. What, you know, what are Labour standing what, what, up and what? saying, we will do for you instead? So what I would say is actually framing the debate and the challenge around whether people are better off or not is the central question, right? Will living standards improve and who has a better offer on living standards improving? I think that's what the election will be fought on. Um, and, you know, like I think to be generous to Labour, if they chuck out ideas, those ideas get pinched. Take childcare, for example. So there is something about saying we will set out our stall closer to the time when the general election might be a year or a year and a half away. I think for me, it's a signal. So those missions and, you know, you take that uh, growth mission, which is we will sustain the highest growth across the G7. But it's not just about growth. It's growth for everyone in every part of the country. We have not done that for 15 years. That is really challenge if that's the bar that is being set. So now the question, I think, for the Labour Party is how do you begin to fill that in? When you talk about a new direction, when you talk about a different economic model, what does that look like? And there are many of us, so the New Economics Foundation, the Institute for Public Policy Research, many organisations that have been developing ideas about what that alternative pathway looks like. So I think it's too early to say, but you know, there's a year and a half for many people to make the case that actually we need a reset and we need a very different approach to how we drive the economy if we're serious that the outcome that we want is an improvement in living standards, not just for those at the top, but for everyone, and critically in every part of the country. We could talk for a very long time about Labour's offer, but I promised I'd let you go at half six. So Miata, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Next story. (laughs) On the day the government announced its budget for the coming year, around half a million workers have taken strike action. Up and down the country, striking workers have formed picket lines to fight for better pay and conditions. Meanwhile, in London, tens of thousands have marched in a massive show of solidarity. So, which workers are walking out today? Well, teachers across England's schools and sixth form colleges are on strike today and tomorrow, represented by the National Education Union. They're striking for better pay and improvements to their working conditions. Last night, Education Secretary Gillian Keegan wrote an open letter to the parents of school children. She called on the NEU to cancel today's strikes, saying she wouldn't negotiate unless they did. NEU Joint General Secretary Kevin Courtney explained to Good Morning Britain why that wasn't good enough. Why won't you take this offer of talks with the Education Secretary? Well, we're willing to talk with the Education Secretary at any time. 
We've been calling out for talks on this dispute since last July with Nadim Zahawi and then with James Cleverley and then Kit Malthouse. They don't talk unless there's a threat of strike action. I've personally met with ministers in Wales in the last couple of weeks, which has moved the dispute there forward, and we've paused the action. It's Gillian Keegan who isn't talking, who isn't making an offer to resolve the dispute. I don't, I don't understand because I thought that she had offered to talk as long as you called off the strike action. I understand well, that you want to, as a union leader, you want to force uh, the education secretary into a position by threatening strike action. But surely, once you force them and she's in that position, you accept the, the offer of talks, don't you? We're willing to talk right now. I would leave this picket line and go down there and talk with Gillian Keegan right now. She is out on a limb. Ministers in Scotland spoke with the union. Ministers in Wales spoke with the union, with me personally, and we've moved those disputes forward. It's Gillian Keegan who isn't talking, who isn't making... What offer has she made to resolve the dispute? Are you aware of any offer that she's made to resolve it? There is no offer from her except talking if we, caught, we cancel the, the strikes, we believe that today in London, we're going to see tens of thousands of teachers and parents on the streets demanding the government invest in our children's education. And we think that pressure is what's going to make a difference for our children's education. Children are having their education disrupted every day because of lack of investment in their schools. There are special needs assistants leaving schools to work in supermarkets because they're not paid well enough. There are GCSE chemistry classes who don't have a chemistry teacher because we can't recruit specialist teachers. There are teachers in primary schools classes in primary schools with successions of temporary teachers all doing their best but where the school can't hold on to a permanent member of staff yeah, that's Courtney, disruption you know every day uh, honestly, to our children's education it's nice to see all those cars honking in solidarity outside um, that school that for some reason looks like an ikea uh, i walk past it sometimes in hackney um teachers pay has seen a dramatic real terms drop since the tories took power in 2010 this graph is from the financial times it shows how teachers pay has fallen dramatically in england since 2010 when the tories came to power the green line shows classroom teachers who've swallowed a more than 10 percent real terms cut teachers in leadership positions and head teachers also had their pay cut though to a slightly lesser extent Junior doctors in England are on their third day of strike too. Tens of thousands of British Medical Association members are taking action for what they call, quote, pay restoration. They're seeking a 35% pay award, which would bring their salaries back in line with their 2009 pay. The cuts were huge over the past 13 years to their pay. Um, tube workers are also on strike. Members of the RMT and ASLEF, covering both drivers and station staff, have walked out today over threatened cuts to pensions and staffing numbers. It's the seventh strike to close the tube in the last year, but the first network-wide driver's strike staged by ASLEF in eight years. Tomorrow, the RMT is also staging a national rail strike across 14 train operators. And there's more. Also today, 135,000 civil servants and government workers are on the picket lines. They're members of the Public and Commercial Services Union and Prospect Union. PCS General Secretary Mark Sawatka told Sky News why they're taking industrial action. Well, we've been striking now since December uh, because the government's own workforce has been given the lowest pay offer anywhere in the economy, 2%, even though 40,000 of them use food banks. 45,000 government workers claim benefits because they are so poorly paid. And astonishingly, today, the tax department, HMRC, that's on strike for the first time, 
a third of the entire department is now on the national minimum wage. £10.40 to an hour for collecting tax, overseeing the minimum wage and enforcing tax regulation. So we're on strike today to draw attention to the fact that the government's treating its own employees worse than anyone else. And of course, we're joining seven other unions on strike today, meaning there's actually 600,000 public sector workers taking industrial action. As with many of the other unions, the government is refusing to negotiate with the PCS unless they call off their action. Seems a bit circular, doesn't it? We won't negotiate with you unless you call off your action. Presumably you call off the action if negotiations go well, in any case. Um, let's move to Coventry. Amazon workers there have downed tools for a week, marking a serious escalation in their pay dispute with the company. They received a pay rise of just 50 pence per hour meaning that in April, workers will earn just eight pence above minimum wage. Represented by the GMB union, they're asking instead for a £4.50 pay increase. Amazon still refuses to recognise the union, though membership has risen from one in 50 warehouse workers to one in every five since the dispute began. Pretty incredible statistic. Finally, members of the National Union of Journalists working for local BBC channels and stations have walked out across the country. They're striking against large-scale cuts to local programming and news. The strike runs for 24 hours, ending at 11am tomorrow morning. Gail Lofthouse is a presenter on BBC Radio Leeds. Here's how she signed off her show this morning. And finally, what is the common word for a sanguineous crust? The answer is... Scab. Enjoy the rest of your day. I shall return tomorrow after 11 o'clock. <laughs> I love Gail Lofthouse from BBC Leeds. Uh, incredible. Um, Dahlia, that was a very long list of striking workers. Um, you know, always great to see a lot of industries on, on, on strike, lots of workers um, fighting for their rights. At the same time, I'm glad it's not anymore because that was, that was a long list. This show could have gone on for a really long time if there were any more people out on strike today. Uh, what do you make of this? What can we say about this, this, this huge action today? Yeah, I think it's firstly important to say that this whole idea that the government is not going to negotiate, is going to uh, pin negotiations on the idea of the strikes being suspended is complete nonsense. And it's it's more of a PR move rather than anything else. It's an attempt to uh, pin the frustration that a lot of people are going to feel at the disruption on the side of the unions and sort of put it acting as if the ball is in the union's court um, if they just suspend the strike. If they suspending the strike when you have the upper hand um, makes no sense. It's an attempt to kind of break the momentum and break the public support um, that we that we have for these for these strikes. Uh, in terms of of what what is there to say, I mean, there's, there's two things. I think the first thing um, is that I think we need to understand that these strikes are not only historic in terms of the labour movement in this country. You know, obviously, this is um, the biggest wave of strikes that we've seen since the 1970s. But I also think we need to understand this as a moment that will really define the future of the economic of the economic system that we we live under. And that's not just because of you know the scale uh, in terms of how many strike days we are seeing, um, but it's also because of the kinds of sectors um, that are going on strike. You know, when we see sort of the the strike moving into industries such as nursing, such as medicine industries that aren't typically don't typically go on strike very frequently um this is this is is always very indicative of uh a pending significant historical 
shift. You know, the last time we saw um, strike action of this kind, as I said before, was in the 1970s. And the outcome of that, those disputes, I would argue, really helped to usher in a new political and economic system. You know, neoliberalism was very much built um, off the back of the defeat of those um, strikes. And much like in the 1970s, this is also a global phenomenon. You know, this is not just happening in the UK. We are seeing thousands of public sector worker strikes, um, of public sector workers on strike in France, in South Africa, you know, across uh, across many um, different countries. Um, and these because we are in the aftermath of, you know, not only a financial crisis, but a pandemic, we're in one of those rare historical moments where there's a lot of moving parts. Um, And so I think that this is going to be a very historically defining moment. And it's incredibly important because I think it will define the kind of economic system that we are going to be under when we are fighting climate breakdown. So it's incredibly significant in that sense. But I also really wanted to highlight here the private sector angle, because obviously there's been a lot of, understandably, a lot of attention on the public sector because of the scale um, of public sector strikes, the fact that, you know, unionization in the public sector has been increasing gradually over the past several years. And, you know, this is a new phenomenon and we're seeing these kind of headline grabbing strikes in the nursing industry, and and for example. So there's been a lot of focus on public sector strikes. But what's happening in the private sector is really interesting because on the one hand, unlike public sector union levels, the private sector union union membership in the private sector has actually been steadily declining and is continuing to decline now. And yet we are seeing some really interesting new forms of mobilization emerging in, for example, Amazon warehouses, amongst Uber drivers in the US, we're seeing it amongst Starbucks workers, where we are seeing models of labor that are very much designed in order to prevent the possibility of striking. On that issue of negotiations, it does seem to me pretty cynical that the government is saying, oh, they're refusing to come to negotiations. They just want to go on strike for strike's sake. We, I, I don't know the details about the teachers in the PCS, but on Monday, we showed you a clip of the British Medical Association responding to similar claims. And they essentially said, look, we've been planning this strike for ages. We've told the government we've had a dispute for months. And what they do is they send us an email on Friday saying, do you want to come in for talks? We'll do it if you call off the strike. Then the the strikers say, or the the union say, well, of course, no, you can't just message us two days before we go on strike and say, we'll we'll talk to you if you cancel it. You should have talked to us months before, right? So it seems very, very cynical. It's not about a government that is trying to avoid disruption to the public. It's the government pinging an email, sort of two days a strike before a strike happens and saying, oh, by the way, would you like to call this strike off? And then they can go to the media and say, we call for talks. It's, 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 the, it's the union, it's the workers who are being disruptive and uncooperative. So it's just a, a PR strategy, which has absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with trying to bring these disputes to an end. Our next story. We've long known the government is pretty keen to exert pressure on the BBC. We know that they've managed to appoint Richard Sharp, Tory donor and chum of two prime ministers, to the role of chairman. We know also that Tim Davey, the BBC director general, is also a former Tory councillor. But now The Guardian appears to have concrete evidence as to how government pressure affects what we actually see in the news. The evidence comes in the form of leaked WhatsApp messages and emails in which senior editors pass on requests from Downing Street to their own journalists. The Guardian reports this. 
One email shows a senior editor informing correspondents that Downing Street was requesting them not to use the word lockdown in relation to the shutdown ordered by Boris Johnson on the 23rd of March 2020, the day the first lockdown was announced. The email sent to correspondents at just after 6pm on the day lockdown was announced was labelled Important Advisory Language Rebroadcast. Then in quotes, Hi all, Downing Street are asking if we can avoid the word lockdown. I'm told the message will be that they want to keep pushing people to stay at home, but they are not talking about enforcement at the moment, it said. Reporters argued unsuccessfully against the advice, and thus the website and broadcast on that day spoke about curbs and restrictions on daily life, while other outlets such as rival broadcaster Sky were referring to the lockdown. Another example of the government appearing to successfully influence coverage also took place during the pandemic. So they say, in another WhatsApp message from Sunday 24th of October 2021, a senior editor asked journalists to make coverage more critical of Labour after a complaint from number 10. The message reads, quote, Downing Street complaining that we're not reflecting Labour's mess of plan B online, i.e. Ashworth said it earlier this week, then reversed. Can we turn up the scepticism a bit on this? The message was sent on the day Rachel Reeves confirmed Labour was calling for Plan B COVID restrictions, a policy initially announced by Shadow Health Secretary Jonathan Ashworth, which was being resisted by the government. Downing Street argued Labour kept changing its position on COVID restrictions, and a line was added to the BBC online story to that effect. Now, in both these examples, what seems crucial isn't that the government have asked certain things of the BBC. Government press officers will make all kinds of requests of the BBC and all other outlets that's normal you know we want you to cover this in in this way but normally what you'd expect is that journalistic outlet especially if it's supposed to be independent and impartial would say no of course i'm not going to take these kind of requests from you but what you're seeing here is that these requests appear to be being passed down from senior editors at the bbc to their own journalists so they're saying downing street says this can you do this what starts as a request from the tory government to bbc editors becomes an instruction from bbc editors to the journalists that work below them and this might just be the tip of the iceberg. The leaks also show another instance where an editor appeared to praise journalists who stayed away from a story that was awkward for the government. So it's written here. This is the, the Guardian copy. In an email, a senior editor congratulated correspondents for staying away from the subject of Jennifer R. Curie after the American tech entrepreneur gave an interview to a newspaper in October 2020, appearing to confirm an affair with Johnson following allegations that he used his position as London mayor to secure favourable treatment for her. The message to political correspondents from the 17th of October 2020 said, quote, Journalist did a wonderful job last night, keeping us away from this story. I'd like to continue that distance. It's not a story we should be doing at this stage. Please call me if you're asked to. And while the leaks don't have concrete evidence that this followed a request from Downing Street, so we don't, we we can't see them saying Downing Street, Downing Street has asked us not to cover Jennifer Arcuri, so don't. Um, we don't have that message, but you know it's plausible that that did happen. And the sources speaking to the Guardian were clear that you know, this would be along the line of a trend. So let's have a look at this. One BBC insider said, quote, particularly on the website, our headlines have been determined by calls from Downing Street on a very regular basis. They said the messages would have been a small snapshot of what was going on because most pressure was applied verbally rather than written down. The source said management appeared to be worried about losing access to politicians and briefings from number 10 if they crossed the Downing Street operation. And the BBC has denied the allegations. They've said the messages don't show that it buckled to political pressure. 
But World Affairs editor John Simpson isn't so sure. He posted this on social media. No surprise about the pressure, it's always there. But the BBC's own rules on impartiality require us to stand up to this pressure robustly at all times. If we don't, we're not doing our job properly. And it's not our job to do Downing Street's bidding. So he seems to think there are some problems for the BBC in this article. Um, Rob Burley also tweeted the article. He was head of live political programming at the BBC from 2018 to 2021. He tweeted this, very troubling evidence of the way that BBC executives operate in relation to government and how they put pressure on journalists to reflect the number 10 line. This goes to the heart of it and needs investigation. Um, Dahlia, what do you make of this particular story? I have to say, when it comes to sort of what lockdown should and shouldn't be called, I do think that's a grey area because obviously during the period of, of you know, the pandemic, there, there was a genuine sort of understandable blurring between sort of like political reporting and reporters playing this role of sort of giving information to the public, partly from scientific advisors, right? So, so that one doesn't seem... Mm terrible but i suppose it's just very awkward you've got these messages saying downing street want us to do this being sent from a senior journalist to a more junior journalist and then obviously the junior journalists interpret that as well downing street wants that so i should do that and then you've also got quotes from junior journalists or these sources saying yeah this happened all the time and then you've got some very senior journalists you know big public facing ones john simpson and a former one or a former bbc journalist rob rob burley saying yeah this rings true the, the BBC does um, conform to government pressure when it comes to what they put in headlines on the website or what they say in news bulletins. Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously, and I've said this before, when we're talking about um, a state broadcaster, impartiality is a very tricky thing to kind of achieve because you're talking about a state broadcaster. You know, it, it's going to cleave towards the establishment, there is going to be a kind of proximity there. Um, and historically, you know, this is not the first time that the government, when it has needed to achieve a particular message discipline, it has typically been able to enforce that through the BBC. You know, the Iraq war um, kind of comes to mind there. You know, the BBC very much played a role in stigmatizing uh, dissent against uh, the Iraq war um, and, and kind of contributing to the the kind of misinformation that surrounded those the the invasion of of Iraq. So in a sense that kind of isn't unprecedented. What I think is interesting here though and what may be different now obviously we don't know we don't always have access to text messages between you know Downing Street and um BBC journalists. But what I think is slightly different here is, as you said, this anxiety around the question of access, because typically that's not something a state broadcaster should ever have to worry about. You know, historically, uh, the BBC is the first boot on the ground, particularly when it comes to what's happening in the British government. Um, that That's historically how the BBC has operated. Um, and I think what was really interesting during the pandemic, a shift that I noticed, was that suddenly... Um, we were getting, you know, really important announcements and briefings about whether or not we were going to enter lockdown, whether restrictions were going to change, what was going, what was the government's next policy in the middle of a health crisis was being delivered, not necessarily by the BBC, but the first dibs were happening behind the paywall in the Telegraph, which of course was the newspaper where the prime minister had formerly worked. And so I think what happened in this government 
um, particularly under Boris Johnson, was this cultivation of this cozy relationship where suddenly exclusives and, you know, major announcements that really, you know, should be going through the public state broadcaster because announcements like whether or not we're going into lockdown, public health messaging should be funneled through a centralized, you know, publicly and freely available news source, not, you know, behind a paywall. And yet that that wasn't happening. And I think that that was an attempt by this government to cultivate this anxiety around access and to put the BBC on the back foot in this way in order to try and discipline the BBC um, into feeling like if it doesn't cozy up to, to um, politicians in this way, that they are going to somehow lose access, which is something I don't think the BBC has ever had to worry about. So whilst I'm, I... I can't really say for certain whether, you know, these text messages like this are unprecedented because we have seen historical examples where, you know, government message discipline has been funneled through the BBC and has been achieved by the BBC. I think anyone who, you know, watches BBC coverage on Palestine, watch BBC coverage on the war in Iraq, will tell you that this kind of impartiality thing is a bit of a, it's a bit of a myth. Um, but what I did, what I do think is a concrete shift is the removal of certain kinds of exclusivity and access and the shifting of that towards uh, media outlets that are more closely aligned with the ideological framework of, of the government. And I really noticed that when it came to who was getting the exclusives and who was getting the briefings on major government announcements in the middle of the pandemic. You know, that to me was, was a real, was, was a, a marked shift. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, actually, uh, because, yeah, I think, the, you know, the BBC, partly they feel like they need to, you know, follow the government's lead because they're worried about, you know, the next funding package they get, right? So the government can always dangle over their, over their heads this idea of future cuts or changes to, um, you know, the, the operation of the BBC, right? That's, that's why lots of people are saying it needs more independence. It needs much longer term funding deals so that the government of the day can't be constantly applying pressure in that way. But as you say, Dahlia, I think also sort of media organizations competing with each other as to who can get the announcement first, which to be fair, ha serves no public, you know, interest at all. Like it, the, the public really doesn't care. Well, it's, it's not in the public. It, it, it doesn't matter, let's say, whether this announcement comes or this, 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 this revelation comes first via the Telegraph, the Times or the BBC. We just want to know what the new what the new announcement from the government is, right? But the government can say, oh, I'm going to give it to the Times, I'm going to give it to the Telegraph, I'm going to give it to the BBC. And then that means that all of these journalists at these organisations are trying to keep the government as happy as they possibly can. Now, see, it, it, it seems like a system which serves no purpose other than to give the government control over the press. And to be honest, I think probably the press should should should, should club together and say, no, we're not going to play this stupid game, right? It, it's not in the public interest for us to be competing over who can get told something first by the government. If it's from an official government spokesperson, it should go to all of the press at the same time. And that would end this sort of sinister and pretty pathetic game where journalists have to sort of beg government officials and government spokespeople to be the first person they WhatsApp, which is essentially what's going on here, right? If, if, if you're hearing it from a government official, it should go out via official channels. That's what I'd say. If, you, if you've got someone who's leaking awkward information for the government, great. Yeah, that, obviously that's not going to go by official channels. It's great if journalists can build up relationships with government advisors who want to leak stories, which might be in the public interest and which um, we, we don't know about the government. But if all they're saying is this is going to be announced tomorrow, 
that's completely pointless for all of us. All it does is creates this stupid competition, which means that we end up with media organizations going super easy when you've got governments making catastrophic mistakes. Final story. Jonathan Gullis is a Tory MP for Stoke-on-Trent who is not afraid of controversy. He's also not afraid of lying. Boris has a star quality that no other politician, quite frankly, could even get close to. But I think Rishi, if he shows competency, which he is doing, he did a good deal with Northern Ireland and the small boats legislation is certainly tough and upset all the right people in all the right places, as far as I'm concerned, Paul. Is and that they, really what you want to do, upset people, as well, opposed to just get, send well, a positive let's be, message let's be clear. out there. When I say upset people, I'm talking about the Twitterati, Wokerati of North Islington, those who are the champagne socialists who pontificate all day long, the lefty lawyers, Keir Starmer's best mates, Mr Flipflop, because he can't take a position on anything this day and age. Those are the people I don't care upsetting about because those are the people who want to call people up here racist, bigots, Nazis, like Gary Lineker has done because they want to take back control of their laws and their borders. It's very much like, you know, a doll where you pull the string from behind and then just say all the things they're programmed to say. Twitterati, woke people, uh, uh, Keir Starmer can't make his mind up, liberal lefties, North London, like proper, you know, verbal diarrhea when it comes to all of the, the dark whistles that the Tories like to use. In any case, the, the thing we're focusing on here is what he said about Gary Lineker. He said he he's called Northern voters racist, bigots, and Nazis. Um, I don't know if you can remember that happening. Um, Gary Lineker has denied um, that that happened. Gary Lineker says, no, he hasn't and never would. Um, he's talking in the third person about himself. This is outrageous and dangerously provocative, which I think is fair enough. Um, Dahlia, what do you make of this? Jonathan Gullis telling... Channel 4, that Gary Lineker said that Northern voters were all racist and Nazis. Um, Lineker saying, I didn't say that. And it's pretty dangerous of you to to lie like that. I mean, it's almost like if you just like fed like the coverage of like the spectator and spiked into like a bot and then just had it like spewing sort of tweets every three seconds on, on the basis of the, um, the amalgamation of all of that. Um, and that's what came out of that man's mouth. I mean, he was really grasping for straws. And the reason he was doing that was because um, he knows that polling shows that if there was an election tomorrow, it, there's a strong likelihood that the Conservative Party would lose basically all of the Red Wall seats that they gained. Um, and so I can understand why he's trying to kind of stoke up this age-old story, this you know very central narrative um, of not just the culture war, but but the class war, which is this bizarre idea that somehow you know the global political and media and economic elite are in cahoots with you know refugees, the most marginalised people in the world, um, and are you know they they kind of have this this pact together to to help one another at the expense of white working class people at the expense of what Enoch Powell called um the ordinary englishman when obviously that is completely ahistorical it's completely incorrect um but it's a very powerful um story it's a very powerful way of narrating um why the promise of you know endless growth of endless development of of fair growth and fair development has not materialized for or for like you know working class people in this country whatever wherever they're from and so that is a way that 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 kind of story of dispossession is narrativized but ultimately what i what i see here with with the kind of the Gary Lineker thing and what i think that this mp is kind of trying to fold into and trying to empower especially given the fact that Gary Lineker broadly has received a lot of support is essentially trying to stigmatize the idea 
that refugees are human beings. And so there's this kind of move to make it so that anyone who expresses any kind of solidarity or even just articulates a moral case rather than a technocratic case, which is the what we are seeing Labour doing, you know, talking not about is this, you know, morally egregious, is this, you know, a violation of human rights, but rather talking about how this is unworkable, it's unpractical, it's not actually going to achieve its goals. Those are different arguments. But essentially what we see is this attempt to cut, to make make the the former of those you know the moral case for this the idea that refugees are human beings deserving dignity to make that a stigmatized position so that anyone who who represents that position publicly even if they are someone who is as you know unthreatening and frankly quite lukewarm as Gary Lineker you know Gary Lineker he's not John Barnes he's not someone who you know this is a man who is very much you know doesn't have a history of being co politically controversial. He is, you know, a very kind of unthreatening to the establishment. But even for him, this drive to stigmatize the any expression of humanity um, of refugees, that is, you know, essentially what this MP is, is buying into. And that was a story that was started by Enoch Powell. And it continues um, today. And that erosion of the idea that that you know human rights are some uh, you know a, a an important legal covenant um is is kind of swept away and instead that kind of moral case is portrayed as being a snowflake or it's portrayed as naivety or it's portrayed as you know delusional rather than you know the foundation upon which a liberal legal system is is founded upon and you know that it was just constructed in the wake of you know, the Holocaust and the wake of the refugee uh, refugees fleeing Nazi Germany, very, very serious, you know, things. And so I think that kind of trivializing and stigmatizing of, you know, the human rights angle to this um, is some, that is what is being expressed in by this MP um, here. And, and I'd like to think that the, the response to Gary Lineker, the broad solidarity that he has received is an indication that that isn't completely working. But at the same time, the bill's been passed. So in that sense, you know, it's hard to say who's really won on this, on this kind of struggle. It's only passed its second reading. So, you know, there's, there's still some time to go. But I mean, I, I, I take your point. It seems like you know, unless there's a snap general election and the Tories lose, this is probably going to happen. Um, I like the idea that we measure our political compass all by footballers now. So it's Gary Lineker, not as radical as John Barnes, but a little bit more left-wing um, than John Terry. We need to make a sort of very dynamic and complex graph when it comes to where they're all, all placed, especially as they seem to be some of the most effective political actors in the country right now. Um, Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.